Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know that this White House leaks like nobody's ever seen a White House leak. And that's where the reporters are getting the story. And they're getting a story about conflict between you and H.R. McMaster. They're getting stories about conflict between you and Jared Kushner and you and Ivana Trump. They're getting all these stories because people in the White House, including you, are leaking. You know that. There's nothing to the Russia investigation. It's a waste of time. Did they try to influence the American election? That's what the investigation is about. We'll have to wait till the investigation is finished. I don't think there's any. I don't think. I don't think there's any doubt that if James Comey had not been fired, we would not have a special counsel. Yes. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who's finally started to realize that people really fucking hate me. In the words of one advisor, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. That was in Mike Allen's Axios newsletter, which I've become addicted to. That and The Daily, the New York Times podcast, have become my morning media diet. Anyhow, Trump's blinding revelation has prompted him to change direction. He really needs to get something done. It doesn't much matter what. And to do that, he really, really needs to make a deal with somebody. It doesn't much matter whom. That's what explains his extraordinary decision last week to cut a deal with the Democratic leaders in Congress while insulting the Republican leaders in Congress instead of the other way around, the way things would normally work in a normal world. The congressional Republicans are totally panicked about this. The reason they're panicked is that Donald Trump is both unconstrained by any actual beliefs and still wildly popular with the people who voted for him. He'll sell out his party in a second flat, and he'll do it again and again. Because he doesn't care what happens to the Republican Party. He cares about being able to declare victory for Donald Trump, any victory. And he cares about being praised in the media, any media. If cutting out Republicans and working with Democrats achieves that result, he'll keep doing it again and again. He'll sign DACA into law. He'll shore up Obamacare. He'll spend trillions on infrastructure and so on. Ryan and McConnell can't go to war with him because in a custody battle over the party's base, they're pretty sure the kids will choose the parent who lives in the big White House. So Donald Trump is up for grabs and on the loose. A president with no principles, no convictions, and no integrity has just launched a new reality show. It's called Let's make a deal. On today's program, who's leaking about the Russia investigation? I'll speak with Ben Wittes of Lawfare, 
who has cracked the journalistic code that lets you know whether those highly placed anonymous sources are inside the special prosecutor's office or Donald Trump's lawyers or Judiciary Committee staffers on Capitol Hill. But first, a few quick announcements. Remember the Trumpcast Book Club? My literary friends Katie Royfe and Philip Gravich are back from their summer writing holidays and ready to have our discussion of Arlie Russell Huxshield's Strangers in Their Own Land. It's next week on September 22nd. That gives you 10 days to still order the book and read it if you want to get full value out of our discussion. And the day after that, on September 23rd, Trumpcast will be in Austin, Texas, with Virginia Heffernan, Jamel Bowie, and me at the Texas Union Theater as part of the Texas Tribune Festival. There's still some tickets available, and you can get them at slate.com slash live. I am pleased to welcome back to the program today Benjamin Wittes. He's the editor-in-chief of the Lawfare blog and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He also has a podcast of his own called Rational Security, which you should not fail to listen to because it is one of the best ones out there. Ben, welcome back to Trumpcast. Thanks. So I really like this story you did this week, which was called How to Read a Story About an Investigation, Eight Tips on Who is Saying What?, and I just thought this was so useful uh, because civilians, that is non-journalists, just don't know this code. And it's a fairly developed code that gives you little hints about where a story is coming from. And of course, where a story is coming from in something like the R- Russia investigation is all important, whether there are leaks that could be illegal coming from prosecution or whether it's defense lawyers leaking or congressional s- sources. So anyway, this was a great piece. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think one of the things about the journalism around these stories is that the code is much more developed. And, you know, from from the naive reader's point of view, there's always these phrases like sources say, which sounds very interchangeable. And in fact, it's not interchangeable. And knowing how to decode what a given set of attributions means actually gives you a lot of window into what the story actually signifies. But you really have to fight to to know what's going on, because this is a case where, while journalists will never say something that isn't true, they will, when it comes to their sources, often be very happy if readers are misled. That's right. And it's a very funny convention where you're not allowed to lie as a journalist, but you are allowed to and in fact expected to say things that are technically true, but that a reasonable reader would not uh, draw a direct line between that and the sort of absolute reality. And so, you know, you can say it's a kind of misdirection or ledger domain, but it has to be done within the confines of speaking words that are true. And that means that you develop a certain set of codes for what kind of attributions do and don't signify precisely what they sound like. Um, And it's on the reader to know how to read those attributions. Right. Investigators say you, you jump to the logical assumption that the investigators are the criminal investigators at the Justice Department or the FBI. But there are a lot of people who qualify as investi- investigators. They're congressional investigators. And you just can't assume, if that's all it says, that there are any investigators in particular. 
Right. So the, the, the most dramatic example of this is government officials. And when you hear the word government, you assume executive branch, right? But government also includes congressional investigators or sometimes members of Congress. And similarly, when, when you say sources familiar with the investigation or sources familiar with the testimony, you immediately think prosecutors who were running the investigation. But that's actually not what that phrase means. That phrase means anybody who has reason to be familiar with the substance of the matter in question, which could include the defense lawyers for the person who testified, for example, or defense lawyers who are uh, interacting with the prosecutors. And so it's really, I mean, sort of rule number one in, in reading these stories is understand the literal words and Think about how capaciously they can be understood. If it says, if it's a named individual, right? If it says, according to Jacob Weisberg, you know that the source is Jacob Weisberg. But if, if it's, you know, sources familiar with Jacob Weisberg's thinking, then you really have to ask the question, okay, what's the universe of people about whom you can reasonably say that? Well, you made the point that you have been quoted when you had been speaking on the record, but still cited as an anonymous source. And, you know, it's interesting why a reporter might do that. Reporters shouldn't do that. That's bad journalistic practice. But it happens partly because an anonymous source often can sound more compelling and valuable than a name source. Yeah, so that that incident angered me a lot, and I made a decision in writing this piece not to link to the story by way of outing the journalist in question, just because I, uh, I, on the off chance that it was that it was a, a sort of good faith accident, um, I didn't want, sort of want to pick a fight with somebody. But you know, I've been very careful. I, I try not to talk off the record or on background when I can possibly avoid it. And particularly when I'm talking about Jim Comey, I've been very careful to only talk on the record and to never represent myself as representing him. Um, That is, I have known certain things, I've talked about certain things, and I've talked in my own capacity about those things, including some interactions that he and I have, and I've never purported to represent him. And so this story, which, uh, you know, described me as a source familiar with Comey's thinking and used it, uh, used these perfectly anodyne comments that I had made, all of which were duplicative of things that I've actually attached my own name to, struck me as an effort to to sound like sort of insider knowledge, what was actually just some guy expressing his opinion. (laughs) And, uh, And I do think that that's an example of abuse of the conventions, uh, not an example of decoding them, because a somebody who, who read that story with the conventions that I have listed would actually get a misimpression. So here's what I think is the most important single point in your piece that, that not enough people understand or remember all the time when reading these stories. And it, it's that it's ethical and legal for defense lawyers 
to talk about a case, basically, and unethical and illegal for prosecutors to talk about it. So when you see one of these stories about an ongoing investigation, just remember that prosecutors can blow their whole case leaking. They can be they can lose their jobs. They could be prosecuted themselves in certain circumstances, whereas Paul Manafort's lawyer can say whatever he wants. Paul Manafort can come out of the grand jury and say, here's what I told the grand jury, right? But if someone connected with the prosecution does that, they've blown it. Right. So it's more extreme even than that. Because, first of all, sometimes it's ethically, I think, as most defense lawyers understand it, it's ethically required to, you know, to talk to the press if you're a defense lawyer. Um, in the sense that, you know, you have an affirmative ethical obligation zealously to represent your client and to, uh, and, you know, these are stories that are in the news that, you know, your client is all over the place. And for you not to get involved at all is actually disserving the client when, when they're in the news every day, right? And so they, people feel an affirmative obligation, and I think rightly so, to, take the client's defense in, in some situations into the public realm. That is not permitted to the FBI agents or to the prosecutors uh, or to the court officials. And so the, the asymmetry is, is, can be you know, quite extreme. Moreover, when defense lawyers do this, they also get an additional benefit from doing it, which is the ability to uh, then suggest that there have been improper prosecutorial leaks, because everybody will assume that the leaks came from the prosecutor's staff. And so you not only get to condition the battlefield in the public arena, but you also then get to cast aspersions at prosecutors or have somebody else cast aspersions. They'll do it for you at prosecutors and imply that there are improper leaks coming out of the investigation. But let's talk about the. Let me stop you there, because because I think that raises a key issue around the journalistic ethics if the same lawyer is doing that. So if a lawyer leaks to you, tells you something about an investigation or a prosecution on behalf of their client, and then in public says on the record, I'm outraged by these leaks from the Justice Department or the prosecution. They have then just used you as a journalist to spread untruth. And at that point, well, first of all, do you think that happens the way I'm describing it or more or less the way I'm describing it? And at that point, should the journalist still protect the source? So I think it's usually, in, in my experience, it's usually a little bit subtler than that, right? So something leaks, and then somebody in, in the wider circle will make that allegation. But I think a good lawyer is usually a little bit careful about, about doing too flagrantly precisely what you just described. But, you know, it's a, it's a totally normal thing. If you think about the president's Twitter feed, uh, he keeps, you know, talking about how Comey is leaking all kinds of things that I suspect are actually coming from his staff. But journalists can never come out and say that. They can't, even though they know that to be true. But aren't they being then manipulated by his side? Because in, in coordination, his people are leaking and then using misdirection to blame the leaks, which would be illegal on the people investigating them and discrediting the investigation that way. 
Yeah, so I think there is an element of manipulation involved, and and uh, readers have to be careful of that. They, ha- you know, there has to be an awareness of of that sort of thing happening, and and the possibility of that. And as as a general matter, I think it's a, a, a it's a sort of a good working assumption that if a story is not sourced in a way that specifically gives rise to your suspicions of a prosecutorial leak. And that can either be because of the nature of the attribution or because it's about something that only could have come from prosecutors, right? There are certain things that have to have come from there if they become public. But if something does not give rise to that specific set of concerns, the general working assumption should usually be it came from either the witnesses themselves, the lawyers for the witnesses or, or subjects, congressional staff who may have overlapping investigative interests, or government staff that are, that are knowledgeable about the underlying matters but not interfacing with the investigation. And and I think those should be our default assumptions about where stories are coming from, except in the instances in which you know uh, or have strong reason to believe that it must have come from the prosecutorial side. All right. Well, let's play name that source a little bit. I mean, I just um, I just pulled out the most recent story about the investigation. The headline in the New York Times was Trump Jr. says he wanted Russian dirt to determine. Clinton's fitness for office. And this is reporting on his private testimony before a Senate committee. And it goes into detail about what he says. And that's the New York Times story. There's a Washington Post story with the headline, Trump Jr. says he can't recall White House role in explaining meetings with Russians. So a somewhat different version. And I'm looking down the New York Times story. I'm reading five paragraphs. Hasn't said anything about sourcing yet. And then it says, a copy of Mr. Trump's statement was obtained by the New York Times. What so does I that think, say to you? Right. So I think you can make a couple of, of basic assumptions about that. So first of all, this is an interaction between Trump Jr.'s attorneys and the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. Yep. Um, we know, uh, so it doesn't involve the prosecutorial side at all. So exclude the whole executive branch from this. This is uh, an interaction Two groups of people, both of whom, by the way, are prone to uh, make disclosures. Congressional staffers are notably leaky bunch. Um, and, uh, and there's no rule that says uh, that Trump Jr.'s attorneys can't uh, disclose whatever information about their client that it's you know, appropriate for them to disclose. And so, you know, I think... What you can say there is that somebody on one side of that transaction, or maybe multiple people on both sides of that transaction, disclosed uh, that document to the New York Times and elsewhere, by the way. Um, and my guess would be that it would probably be uh, the Trump Jr. Uh, side of the uh, of the interaction, but it could be either. So, and if it is the people on the Senate Judiciary Committee, staff or senators. And they describe this. And when I'm looking at the Washington Post story now, which says a little more, the spin is a little less on on Don Jr.'s side, says he frequently said he could not provide important details according to people who attended the hearing. Now, that certainly could be his lawyers, but it's 
possible that it's the investigators uh, on the Senate committee staff. Have they done anything wrong in leaking that to the Washington Post? You know, so that would be a, a question of the specific rules governing that closed door hearing. And my guess is there is some Senate Judiciary rule that would, you know, that requires the confidentiality of those hearings. But but I don't I don't know what specific rules or what the specific terms of the hearing were. Usually committee, private committee documents like a transcript of that hearing have to be the release has to be authorized by the committee in some way. So I'm sure there's some private rule. There's there, there's some rule governing the Senate Judiciary Committee that says, hey, that staff's not supposed to leak that. Uh, on the other hand, it's the kind of thing that happens all the time. And it's certainly not, you know, a matter of any kind of hard law or, um, you know, uh, in contrast, by the way, to grand jury testimony where federal rule uh, of criminal procedure 6E actually makes it a crime that's enforceable by contempt, you know, a, a contempt proceeding to leak matters occurring before the grand jury. So it's, you know, it's, it's a, you know, if there's a rule against it, it's a very soft rule. So then here's the political story. It says notes from former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort on a meeting he attended last year with a Russian lobbyist and Donald Trump Jr. are seen, are not seen as damaging to the Trump family or campaign officials, according to government officials and others who have looked at the notes. Right. Boy, do we need your Dakota read, ring for that one. Okay, so so that one, I think you can say, first of all, it is somebody who is, you know, is sort of sympathetic to and wants to get out a kind of pro-Trump version of that story. Republican Senate staff and, and Don Trump's lawyers. I think they're, you know, those are the those are the logical uh, thing government officials does mean you're not talking just about private sector defense counsel, um, but government officials is consistent with, say, somebody like Ty Cobb, right, who is handling this for the president, but doing it from the White House as opposed to from a private law firm. It's also consistent with uh, Republican uh, congressional staff for certain committees. Ben, this is sort of a last question for you, and it's a bigger one. Do you think this code serves the public and serves readers of newspapers and journalistic audiences. I mean, you are about the most versed person in this kind of thing I know. I've spent 30 years in journalism. Getting together with you, I feel like we can kind of puzzle this out in a really interesting way. But it, it just makes me think that civilians are completely at sea. I mean, they they just want to get the news. They don't want to have to read code, break code to understand what's really going on in a story. Yeah, it's a real problem. And, and, you know, one of the reasons that I wrote it was that a bunch of people, frankly, who should know better because they've, you know, they've played in these waters, were making assumptions that certain leaks came from Mueller that I thought were just, you know, using this code. I thought, wow, that, that's clearly not right. And it made me think that actually the degree of misdirection that the press is using is pretty effective, including for some very sophisticated readers. And it causes a lot of people to uh, actually misunderstand the dynamics of the investigations in some pretty profound ways. And so I'm, I'm not totally comfortable with it. That said, I also don't really know what the alternative to it is, because the journalists make agreements with the sources as a condition of getting information in the first place. And if 
they said, okay, well, we've got to describe you in a fashion that's, you know, more precise and more likely to cause you to get outed, uh, the, the results, um, would be that a lot of information would dry up. And so my, my best solution that I know is simply to educate people about what the code means and to have readers be as sophisticated as possible about what they're reading. And my takeaway from your piece is that the single best shortcut is for the duration of this Russian investigation, assume Mueller's not leaking, assume everybody else is. So I, I think that's really good point. So I, I say this in the piece, but it's really an important takeaway. You know, one one thing you look for in these attributions is whose thinking and whose point of view is represented. And I have seen a lot of stories that have characterized what Mueller has done, right? He issued subpoenas to so-and-so. He executed a search warrant to so-and-so. He's held meetings with the New York Attorney General's office about cooperation on the Manafort matter. I've seen zero stories that describe what he's thinking or what he's planning. And I think that actually is very telling about the the opacity of the investigation and the fact that we're we're all reading tea leaves based on its actions from outside it rather than a whole lot of people having ongoing lines into it and emerging with senses of his planning and thought. I've been speaking to Benjamin Wittes of Lawfare. Ben, thanks for joining me on the show. My pleasure as always. That's it for today's show. But before we go, I was talking at the beginning about my morning media diet. That's my daily diet. My weekly media diet focuses on the Slate Political Gab Fest. Basically, you don't know what you're talking about over the weekend if you haven't listened to the Slate Political Gab Fest with John Dickerson, David Plotz, and Emily Bazelon. That show is going strong for 11 years. If you haven't tried it, you should be listening. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. John DiDomenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.